us on our own. It is Jesus who saves us from the assaults of sin and leads us into a new way of life. And so here again what John says in verses 4 to 6. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him. All right, so let's hold up just for a moment and see if we're tracking. Because on the very surface of this, here's how I think you and I might be inclined to hear what we just read. Bit by bit. Jesus appeared to take away our sins. Yep, cross, got it, check, get it. In him is no sin. Yep, Jesus is sinless, led a sinless life. I got that, check. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Uh Uh-oh. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows, known him. Uh Uh-oh, double uh uh-oh, right? Is that how you react when you hear that? Here's why, Chuck and everybody else, me, here's why. It's because we tend to think of sin as the various ways that we mess up or believe that we disappoint God. And it's not that that's wrong, but it's not really the full picture of what John has in mind here. What John has in mind is a transfer of allegiance, of us moving from the kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom of light. So to help make this point, I want to read to you, this is something our family's been doing, how long, Amy? Six months, at least? Um, This book uh, by my friend Jared Boyd uh, called Imaginative Prayer. The premise of this is for children, for families to do together, and he leads families in practices of imaginative prayer in order to help kids especially, but I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you it was super helpful to me, and Amy would say the same thing as well, to sort of wrap our heads around big concepts in the Bible. And this was just, this one in particular about sin was so profound to me, and so I want to invite you just to listen to these words. Here's the imaginative prayer he's recommending. Imagine with me that you're in the middle of a deep forest, and you're surrounded by trees, and you're standing in front of a giant cave. The entrance to the cave is right in front of you. It's a large cave, perhaps one in which a dragon or a great beast might live inside. And the cave seems dark, but you're curious about what lies beyond the entrance of the cave. Is it a deep cave? Is there, in fact, something living inside? You decide you want to find out what's inside. You take courage and move to the front of the cave. Imagine that you have some rocks in your hand and you begin to throw the rocks into the darkness of the cave and you hear a faint echo call back to you. This is a deep, dark cave. And the darkness feels almost like a thickness in the air. A bad smell is coming from the cave and as you make your way deeper inside, the smell gets worse and it becomes difficult to breathe. Imagine walking down a dark trail that curves around and around, heading deeper into the cave. There is a great power inside this cave. There's something like gravity or a great magnet pulling you deeper into the cave. It's almost like quicksand, except you aren't sinking into the ground. You're being pulled deeper and deeper into the cave. And the smell is getting worse. 
It's becoming more and more difficult to breathe. You try to turn around and walk the other way, but you can't. The force is too strong. The power is too great. You feel powerless to escape the cave. You feel trapped. How does it feel to be inside this cave? Are you scared? Are you angry? Are you sad? Imagine now that you reach the center of the cave and you see that there's a giant wall at the end. And on this wall hang seven faucets, like the faucet at your kitchen or bathroom sink or the faucet that you connect your garden hose to when you, when you, when you, when you want to run through the sprinkler or water the garden. The giant wall with giant faucets is a strange sight indeed. Each faucet is the size of a car. Imagine looking at the seven giant faucets mounted on the wall of the cave. Pouring out of each faucet is a thick colored liquid. Each faucet has a different color coming out of it. But it isn't just a trickle flowing out of these faucets. It's like a rushing waterfall. Imagine colored water rushing out of each faucet. These are powerful faucets and the water rushes together into a giant pool and the stink is coming from that pool. As the liquid mixes together, there's a giant mist, a gas that fills the air around you, and it rises up like steam rises when you take a warm bath or a shower. Imagine looking into the pool and seeing all the colors mixed together. The pool is dark and murky and smelly. And as you look closer at each faucet, you now notice that each faucet has a label. A large wooden sign hangs on each faucet, and a word is written on each sign. It's too dark in here to read them, but you remember the flashlight in your pocket. Take the flashlight out of your pocket and shine it on the signs. The first one says lust. Lust is a word that describes when our desire for something is stronger than it should be. Sometimes we lust after things when we want them a little too much. When we desire something so much that it feels like there's this power drawing us to that thing, that's called lust. The second one says gluttony. Gluttony is a word that means taking too much. Sometimes we have too much of something, too much food, too much TV, too much activity. We have gluttony when we are wasteful. The third faucet says greed. You know what greed means. It's like lust and gluttony, but greed is when you keep wanting more. Greed is when you want more and more and more all to yourself. You move on to the fourth faucet, which says sloth. Sloth means laziness. It's a funny word that describes what it's like to not want to do anything. Experiencing sloth is like having important work to do and instead deciding to just lie down and ignore the work. You shine your light on the fifth faucet and it says wrath. Wrath means excessive or violent anger. Wrath is what makes people fight and kill each other. Wrath is anger that won't go away. The sixth faucet says envy. Envy is when you're discontent with what you have. We envy when we look at someone, what something someone else has, and we want it for ourselves. Envy is feeling sad when someone else has something better than us. The sign on the final faucet with colored water pouring out of it says pride. Pride is when you feel so good about yourself and your accomplishments that you compare yourself to others. It's the opposite of humility. We have pride when we rely too much on ourselves and not enough on God's grace. You step back from the faucets and watch the powerful waterfalls pouring into the pool below. You feel icky and the air is smelly and it's becoming more difficult to breathe. 
Imagine that there is a giant wheel in the center of the cave, and you wonder if this is the way to turn off the faucets. All of these faucets have bad things pouring out to them, out of them, bad and powerful things. Imagine yourself trying to turn the giant wheel, which looks like the wheel that a captain of a large ship might use to turn a boat. It's too heavy. You're not able to turn it. Now imagine Jesus is there. He's standing right behind you. Imagine stepping back from the wheel to make room for Jesus to try to turn off the faucets. Jesus effortlessly turns the wheel, and the faucets shut off. Immediately, completely, the cave fills with light and fresh air, and there is a sweet smell. Jesus is the king who came to undo the power of death. This is Jesus the king who came to defeat the power of sin. This is what it means for Jesus to save us from the assaults of sin on us and on our world. And it might be true to call inappropriate actions and behaviors on our part sin, but the bigger issue which John has in mind here is sin in the sense of all that serves to sever us from the love of God, from peace with one another, and from the abundant life that Jesus invites us into. John isn't suggesting that we interpret any and every instance of our behavioral sin as a possibly an indication that we don't really love Christ. It's not what John is saying, and much less is he not saying that we are not in those instances fully and completely loved by Christ. Rather, he's saying that one of the ways that we know that we've encountered the risen Christ and received his invitation to live as an adopted son or daughter is that we would find a return to the sinful ways of the world incomprehensible. Jesus saves us from the assaults of sin. And though it doesn't happen overnight or all at once, The more that we experience the life that Jesus invites us into, the more the grip and the power of sin loses its appeal. Enough of the dog. The point of this letter to early Christians is to reinforce the idea that the effect of sin is the rupture of love and peace and trust that God created for our joy and well-being. This should be crystal clear in what we read here in verses 7 and 8. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, which is sin, and all that seeks to kill and steal and destroy that which God most wants for us, his beloved children. Jesus saves us from the assaults of sin. He does it in two ways. Back to the cross and the resurrection. He strips the devil of his power through the cross. He takes all 
all of the weight of the world's sin upon himself, and he renders Satan finally, ultimately, powerless. But then in his resurrection, he ushers in a new reality, a whole new world, a whole new way of life, one that's characterized by the pursuit of God, our vying for the good of all, and a way of life that testifies to God's purposes in this world. Now, here's the thing. It's one thing to say all this. It's another thing to walk it out in our day-to-day lives, right? I hope we can all agree on that. I don't think I even have to ask for a show of hands to, know, to ask who of us still feels assaulted by sin. Of course, we all do. That's because the resurrection makes a new reality available to us right here and right now, but yet we still await the final return of Christ when God will bring about the full and total restoration of all things. We live on the other side of the dawn, but on this side of the sunset or the, the full dawning of new creation. Jesus saves us from the assaults of sin is not a statement of a completely finished reality. It is a statement of a present promise. To those who want it, Jesus now can save us from the assaults of sin. But because we live in those in-between times, it's really fitting that we should respond to this in prayer. And so as Amy led us last week, So I want to lead us in a prayer of response this week, inviting us to name when we ask, Jesus, save us from the assaults of what are the sins that plague your thoughts, your heart, your mind for the world, for yourself, for your friends, for your family, for your neighbors, and lead us into your resurrected life. And we'll say, end that with Lord in your mercy, and we'll all respond by saying, amen. Let's respond in prayer together. Father, just as we do this, thank you for the words um, of this letter. Thank you that you want to save us from the assaults of sin, that you haven't left us without power or without recourse, but actually you've invited us into a new way of life. And so God, hear these, our prayers of response now.